This is Alex Pearson. And a good Monday morning to you. It is March 10th. I'm Alex Pearson. Great to have you here this Monday morning and uh, kicking off a new week. I only uh, discovered, like probably a few of you out there, that uh, the kids don't have school today. So um, I was glad to discover that before I sent him. But no, the kids are out again. So it's um, do your job, try to entertain them. Send them outside. Do what my mom did. Just send them outside and lock the door. Find something to do. Nonetheless, it was a great weekend. We had three holidays to celebrate, which is uh, very unusual, and three days of sunshine. It was just an amazing stretch of weather. Certainly uh, put a bounce in my step, so I hope it did for you. But it was also, I think, a much needed, like a release of a grip that a lot of us, I think, needed just to breathe. Just to breathe. Even if you have allergies, just breathe. But yeah, it's, uh, it was a busy weekend. We got a busy week, so we'll go through some of this because we've got testimony this week from Miss Katie Telford, of course, Chief Advisor to the Prime Minister on Chinese interference. So we'll talk about that. And um, we are expecting new financial news this week, Wednesday. And will interest rate hikes hold? Will they go up? What will Tiff Macklem do? I mean, for some, it won't matter. At this point, but Tiff Macklem did say he'd hold them for now, but they are going to go up. Um, you know, for some, though, it's going to be a little too late. I, I want to do, though, a little bit of comparison between the haves in this country and the have nots, because we were never in this thing together. So let's just wipe out that stupid talking point because I hate it. It's a dumb talking point. It means nothing because it's no, in no way true. And it comes into, I think, sharp focus this week as we, you know, see the reality for a lot of people in this country and the fantasy of those in cushy, secure government jobs. And when you look at the latest polling over the weekend that Angus Reid did, it reveals, nothing shocking, Canadians are struggling. In the numbers, it shows one in three of us, so we're talking 34%, admit they're in terrible shape or bad shape which is a 6% hike from last July. Another 27% say they've been in bad financial shape since the first lockdowns went into place in 2020. So that's a good long stretch of, um, you know, kind of trying to make things work. And so whether or not we get an interest rate change on Wednesday, which we don't suspect we will, it is coming. Macklin has already said it's coming. It has to go up again, and it could be fairly steep. So... For a lot of people, I think it's going to be a matter of time until they get nudged over the edge. And then you compare this to tens of thousands of federal public service employees who over the weekend voted overwhelmingly to walk off the job because they want more money. They want as much as a 47% raise, plus, of course, all sorts of other perks. It's never just about the money because I guess their struggles real too. And this is a one, just one representative uh, union. We're talking, let's talk about the CRA workers. So we're talking 35,000 workers. They've been negotiating for over eight months. Now, I don't know why you can't sort out anything in eight months. Like eight months, you can't sort out anything. It always has to come down to a strike deadline. But yeah, eight months of negotiations. Now they say, as of April 14th, we could go on the uh, picket line. Your taxes, of course, have to be in on time. They just won't rush any return back to you. And they're demanding at least a 30% raise. But they also want remote working. They want improved job security. And they want a work-life balance. Well, who doesn't want that? 
I assure you, those of us who don't work 8.30 to 4 would love something like that. It does not exist in the private sector. And in the last seven years, the public sector um, expanded by 31%. So we've expanded our public sector by 31%. Our service has not improved in any way, shape, or form. And we've already farmed out $21 billion in consultants to do a lot of the public sector's work. None of it adds up. And when you look at the average government job, they they get paid about $125,000 plus pension, benefits, sick days, holidays, and every federal day off like today uh, that you can imagine. And during the pandemic, 310 million uh, government workers got at least one raise, and then $559 million was paid out in bonuses. Plus, of course, on top of this, they were bought new desks, new computer equipment, new equipment to do their job out of the house. So it adds up. And the CRA is just one of a couple of unions making such demands. There's a bigger union of 120,000. And they want a 4.5% wage increase every year for four years. Wouldn't we all like that? I'd love that too. I mean, who would not love that kind of raise? And of course, it also comes with the same perks. But when you do the math, if we gave a 4.5% raise to 335,000 federal workers, it would add to $19 billion more. I don't think that was in the budget, was it? Or maybe it was socked away. But the government trough can never be too full. And if it is not full, then the politicians and the you know, public sector will find a way for us to fill it. But why shouldn't these government unions be demanding more? I mean, the MPs just got their fourth, fourth raise in three years. Yeah, as of April 1st, they got a big, big raise. So we got all the taxes dumped on us, about half a dozen of them, and MPs got another $15,500 pay bump. And not one of those who say that they've got our backs Turned it down. Not one of them. Not even Jagmeet Singh, who's demanding Galen Weston donate his raise to a food bank. I mean, this guy, Jagmeet Singh, cleared $342,000 last year. He's the very kind of rich people that he says he likes to hate. Well, he could have he could have turned around and said, I don't want that pay raise. I'm going to give it to somebody in need. But no, he took it. I mean, there's really very real need out there, and it's going to get worse. But it is not anybody in a government job. And I know not everybody in the government makes these salaries. There are those who are on contract. But these, some, of these, some of these workers are asking just for ludicrous amounts of money and things that just don't exist. What on earth is job security? Who on earth gets that? No one in the private sector. You do your job or you're fired. You screw up, you get another chance. If you screw up again, you get fired. Don't show up for work, you get fired. Like, it's just not realistic. You know, and as a deadline for the walkout looms, I guess we're, looms, we're going to see who's, got, who's back in this government. And I suspect it will be the public sector because they're a crucial voting block. And the Trudeau government, you know, whether they get tough and stick to the raises that reflect actual inflation or inflate the raise to keep this voting block happy. But they've been awfully quiet about this. If you can justify the cost to me, maybe I'm missing something, but 30 47% all these raises? I'm sorry, that doesn't add up. Maybe if we were getting all the services, like we didn't have a year where you couldn't get a passport for months, or maybe if you could get EI payments on time right now, or 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 maybe if the airports worked, all these things 
maybe people wouldn't care. But we're paying more for the public service. They want more for their paychecks. They want things that no one else in the real world has. And the question is, I guess, are they going to get it? We're about to find out because strike deadline is in six days. Don't forget, you got to have your taxes in. They just may not get it back to you. And what does the strike look like for these guys? Are they going to pick it at their house on Zoom? Are they going to go into the office? Well, where will they pick it? We'll kick this thing off for you. We've got a busy show. It is a busy week. Lots of things going. Certainly cost of living is a big part of the theme these days. But when you see the polling, 34% of uh, Canadians say they're in terrible shape. Where do you see yourself in the poll? And what would a reasonable raise be in today's climate for a government worker? It can't not tug at your heartstrings, and yet it's happening all the time across the city, certainly I think across this uh, province. But that is the story of people abandoning their pets. And we know that this has become a real problem with people dumping all sorts of domestic pets. We uh, had been talking about the situation in Rouge Park where people are dumping cats and dogs and, and hoping that they'll be okay. Uh, but this is a story about three-year-old Max, a real handsome uh, shepherd cross, that was abandoned in a Toronto park near Primrose Avenue at the uh, Davenport and St. Clair area. There was a little note attached to Max saying that uh, the family could no longer afford his care. And uh, because of a lost job, they lost their apartment. But the dog's very smart, not fixed, great with kids. And uh, so, I mean, that's the reality facing this family. But I think, um, you know, when someone has to part with a pet... I think that usually is one step shy of the desperate stage, even though people do dump them. But they're, they're most, if there's a family pet, that's the last thing you want to do. Let me bring in Dylan Dodson of the Humane Society, senior manager over at the social work side of it. Uh, good to have you. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having us. So this story, because uh, Max just kind of looks up at you. He's a real handsome little guy. Um, yeah. But, you know, the note, I think, tells his story. You know, what, what's, um, what's the update on this? Have you heard anything? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we did reach out to our social media channels and, and individuals and organizations like yourself have been so instrumental, um, as well as help from our community. And, and we do have a really strong lead on connecting with Max's family. So we're really thrilled on that front. This is not sadly the first time you're hearing about it. Um, I mean, this case will get attention, but I have to think that this is happening a lot because we hear from organizations like yourself that are uh, just just absolutely packed uh, with a lot of people uh, dropping off animals. But how how much are you seeing the dumping into uh, public areas? Yeah, so um, we're, we're blessed with a host of different services that, that are available to our community. Um, and so we're really blessed that, that our community members um, know to come to us. And we really encourage other, other families that might be faced with difficulties in terms of pet ownership, um, that our doors are open. Um, and there are a variety of different ways that we may be able to support uh, families. And so we'll really have those individualized conversations um, to make sure that, that families are making the best decisions for themselves, but also that they know that there might be other options options. We strongly know that our uh, animals are family members, right? And so when folks find themselves in these precarious situations, um, we recognize that these, these, are, these are systemic issues and these are, these are issues that are outside of, of their own individual control. And so we want to align with our pet families um, and really walk alongside them while they're, while they're sort of making these 
very difficult decisions. And, and if we can maintain the human-animal bond, that's, that's our, our key priority. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there are options. Sadly, a lot of people don't realize that there are options uh, out there and, and just walk away. I mean, I'm not sure how anyone can walk away from an animal, you know, in a park where you've got these situations in Rouge Park, because generally speaking, you know, domesticated animals generally won't uh, survive. But are you seeing a, a surge at all, uh, Dylan, as far as, um, you know, demands and, and, and people needing help? We, we know that our community needs help. Um, I, I'm, I can say that we haven't experienced tremendous return to our adopters. Um, that, that's not an experience that we've had down at Toronto Humane Society. I will say that our, um, our, our requests for surrenders or rehoming um, has increased, although those numbers are not superseding that of 2019, right? So pre-pandemic, we're not seeing them higher than that level. Um, so it's not an experience that we are seeing, but uh, our efforts are really to reach out to our community. Um, we know that there's increased challenges. We're in the midst of critical periods of housing concerns and economic concerns, healthcare implications, um, and of course there's shadow pandemics that are existing. So we want to make sure that we're sort of staying on top of this and, and doing our level best um, with partnering with folks like yourself um, to, to let our pet families know that there are options out there and, uh, and we're happy to, to engage in those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I know that uh, one of the offsets of the uh, pandemic was every, a lot of people got pets. A lot of people got pets because it was a thing to do, and 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 some people have not kept the pets because once life kind of got back to normal, it was like, oh, they're expensive, and they need a lot of time, and they need exercise. And I guess some people just didn't think of that when they decided to bring them into the situation. And so there's that side of it, but then there is the real stress because animals are expensive um, and they need care. Yeah. And if you've lost your job or you're you know you're in a situation where you just can't make ends meet, uh, decisions have to be made. What are some of the programs that you guys have available? And are there programs, Dylan, that are set up, up, up across the network of shelters? Because you all kind of work independently of each other, but are there programs people can look to and or um, use or utilize with donations and such to get, help them get through periods? Yeah, thank you. So uh, the, the program that matches, Max is probably um, helping us support the, the highest at Toronto Humane Society is our urgent care program. And we are a foster-based program specifically for individuals in our community that are experiencing uh, a temporary hardship. Um, so whether that's housing precarity or, or you know, are seeking sort of medical, medical treatment and don't have alternative care for their pets or fleeing violence. Um, we, we offer this program free of charge to community members where they can enroll uh, their pet into a program. The animal is, is then received medical care through our, our shelter um, and then they're placed into loving foster homes and so um, when the time comes that they're to be reunited and things have stabilized for the the owners um, then their pet goes home and the reunions are full of tears on, on both sides um, so we do have our urgent care program we employ folks to use that um, if it's relevant to them we also have our public veterinary service so if individuals are looking for spay neuter or preventative wellness um, care then that's always an option for them today we also have our community day so if folks are are in need of pet food um, or an array of uh, animal supplies and accessories, please come on down to 11 River Street between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Um, those services are free of charge. Um, and finally, we have our Pet Parent Support Network. Um, and so this is, a, this is a, a network of expertise and knowledge of our staff and our supporters. And uh, we provide a, a host of different opportunities to engage in how we can ensure that the human-animal bond is, is not broken unnecessarily and to strengthen and improve mm. the human-animal bond. And so we'll provide resources and guidance to families. I would think most, not not all, but most people, um, if they're at the point of surrendering their pet, uh, you know, 
It takes a lot, I think, to get someone or a family to part with their pet, but, you know, it's generally a last resort. Yes, that's our experience as well, absolutely. Very, very sad, but nonetheless, uh, always options out there. So look at the options before dumping them. And I guess we'll wait for an update to see if we can uh, reconnect Max with his family. Uh, There's no question Max would like to be back with them. Conversation we're not really having, which is a bit surprising, because you'd think, you know, this would be met with outrage, and it's not really getting met with much more than a shrug. And I was reading in the National Post that the uh, man operating the boat who has not been found yet, um, had been released a year and a half ago for smuggling across that particular St. Lawrence crossing. And so the police are connecting him to the smuggling of those two families who drowned. And this border crossing is well known. It's well known to politicians and police, you know, that the uh, Aquasanze uh, Reserve is a, is a opportune area to move drugs and uh, guns and cigarettes back and forth. But humans, I mean, this is the first I've certainly heard about it in this country. I mean, we know that people try to cross, but are smuggling operations a known practice? And how are we going to stop what is an area seen by many as kind of a third rail where it's not like the government's going to want to go in and do anything um, because it could get very, very uh, fractious. Let me bring in Yvonne Dander into the conversation, Professor Emeritus, Criminology and Criminal Justice University over at the Fraser Valley. Great to have you. Good morning. All right. Um, is this new? I mean, when you heard the headline about the two families that drowned, uh, was this surprising to you in that particular area? No, it wasn't. I mean, it's an area, phys- a geographical area, which has been uh, known for various forms of uh, contraband and smuggling for decades. So this is not a new thing at all. Yeah, I mean, we've heard and, about the smuggling, but but I, I don't yeah. recall humans. Is is the human side of it new? Well, for the longest time, uh, most of the people who were trying to come uh, uh, illegally or cross the border illegally were going in the other direction, coming from mm-hmm. uh, Canada right. to the U.S. And last decade or so, and more so in the last two, three years, uh, there's been a bit of a reversal of that, uh, people uh, trying to come to Canada. So... Uh, from the U.S. Now, in this case, it was uh, the people who apparently or allegedly were trying to go to the U.S. Uh, It's not uncommon. It's actually happening a lot. But mostly uh, smugglers in Canada take less dangerous routes. You know, they don't. It's one thing to smuggle cigarettes across the the river, the St. Lawrence Mm. River. It's another thing to smuggle people. And uh, so usually they, they pick uh, areas that are far less dangerous, uh, easier to cross. Uh, and uh, that's why, uh, you know, it's a little surprising, but uh, of course there's money to be made, right? That's eight people uh, and that's a lot of money. We don't know how much they were charged, but uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, it's five, ten, twenty thousand dollars a piece. So uh, that's a lot of money uh, to um, help people cross the border illegally. And it, what it seems also is that, uh, well, you said uh, maybe we know that this is a well-traveled area by smugglers. On the other end, uh, the people who were being smuggled, you can ask, mm-hmm. well, how much did they know about this? How, how much did they know about Canada? Were they just taken by a smuggler who mm-hmm. made all kinds of promises to them? Or did they really understand what the risk was and what the alternatives were? Like in BC uh, here, 
uh, people have been known to cross the uh, uh, the Peace Arch Park. Well, yep. it's basically yep. a park. You, you walk across the line, you don't even see the line. There's really no danger there other than being caught, right? Uh, whereas mm -hmm. uh, what was happening in the Prosesny Observation, well, that was very dangerous. And I think most Canadians would have known that this is a dangerous way to cross. So uh, they were sold something. Uh, not yeah. exactly sure by the smugglers. Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, certainly through uh, uh, as Roxham Road became somewhat normalized, uh, a real cottage industry kind of booning out of this thing where bus drivers, they all knew the route. Everyone had their uh, kind of handout cab drivers making money. Everyone had their little bit where they were making money. So they're happy to um, either offer services or exploit those who are trying to come here. Um, and so there, there's got to be questions asked as to okay, how often is this happening? Because we can't have this happening, uh, you know, all the time. And if it is quietly happening, then it's got to be stopped. But, you know, um, the, the reason this is so well, I think, known maybe in Ontario and Quebec, um, I mean, I remember a, a, a news director once telling me that he wanted me to go out dark at night uh, on this particular area to, to maybe see if we could catch the um, cigarette and um, smuggling stuff uh, and, at night, to which I said, uh, yeah, like hell, I'll be doing that. I, I, that's not exactly safe. Um, but but this is not an area that would be um, unknown to police, certainly and politicians, because they haven't wanted to stop it because it is it is you know contentious, and so uh, they have chosen not to 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 step into this particular area to stop any kind of smuggling. And I don't know um, if they're going to have to say anything else to stop possible smuggling of humans. But if there's money to be made, I would think that this would become maybe a practice uh, that'll keep going. Hopefully not. But. Well. Absolutely. And it has kept going. This is not new. Uh, and you're right, you know, there were political sensitivities involved in terms of policing uh, the reserve. And uh, so that's always a complication. Uh, the other thing, without accusing anyone, uh, mm -hmm. you have to understand also that uh, there is oftentimes complicity by the surrounding communities, such as if people in the community do not know. Uh, actually, uh, in this case, where there's two communities involved, there's a community where the uh, incident has occurred, the Aquasasni Reserve, but they, there's also the community of people who are being uh, smuggled. Uh, it's, it's interesting to think that the smugglers, from the point of view of the rest of us, are criminals, but from the point of view of those uh, uh, communities, ethnic communities that uh, try to rely on smugglers to move into Canada or outside of Canada, these smugglers are almost heroes, right? They're treated as as benevolent uh, 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 aid, uh, you know, assistance, right. people who, who help. So it's hard to, to investigate that unless you... Uh, you spend a lot of time penetrating, developing the relationship, doing surveillance. It's not just a matter of waiting at the border and stopping someone. Yeah. And that's usually that's usually the, the big problem with law enforcement is that they try to catch the smugglers uh, at the border. And of course, that's the obvious thing. But if you want to dismantle a smuggling operation, which is always an ongoing thing, you've got to go way deeper than that, have proactive investigations surveillance and all of that because otherwise what you do is you're as you said earlier you're stopping a taxi driver uh, yeah. who makes an extra 50 bucks on, on on the ride that's not going to lead you anywhere so a lot of it has to do with law enforcement and the decisions that are being made 
in addition, in this case, to the sensitivities uh, involved in policing that particular area. Yeah, are you surprised? I mean, I'm not surprised that there's not a lot of political talk about it. Um, but are you surprised that it hasn't been met with more um, with more outrage? Um, it's not every day in this country that you hear two families, especially with young babies, dying in the waters trying to cross rivers. But are you surprised that it's been kind of met with such indifference? Yes. Well, I'm mildly surprised. It's anything else. It's a news cycle, right? People were indignant yeah. for 24 hours and then they forgot. Uh or they, you know, started worrying about something else. Yeah. Uh, but in, in fact, uh, you know, it, let's not put things out of proportion here. It's fairly rare, very rare, in fact, that people die trying to cross to the U.S. or from Canada or vice versa. Uh, there are so many areas where you can do it safely, or at mm-hmm. least without that kind of risk, that uh, uh, it doesn't happen so often. Uh, we've we've seen another case this winter where people were left on their own and died of uh, freezing, uh, mm-hmm. and but you know it's very rare. If you look at all the cases, uh, usually uh, there's not that kind of danger. It's their land crossing. Uh, the worst that can happen is you get lost for a little bit of time. Of course, in the winter, if you're not from Canada and don't understand the harshness yeah. of our winters, you winters you may you know, make wrong decisions, but it's fairly safe area as compared to what we've seen in Europe crossing the Mediterranean or or even the, the in the south of the U.S., some of the crossings there are very dangerous. And what people forget, including the people who get smuggled, is that there's no loyalty from those smugglers. They'll drop you like yeah, an old shoe anytime if they don't further exploit you. You know, it's not unknown. Actually, it's quite common for the smugglers to charge you a price and uh, once you've started, you double the price, and then at that point, you're totally vulnerable. You have no way to go, uh, and uh, you're, you're stuck. So the smugglers, no matter how they're perceived in the community, the, are, are not the do-gooders, right? They're there for profit, yeah. and they yeah, want to avoid risk, right? So they can't be trusted, and maybe that's another thing that, that needs, where there needs to be more education, particularly in... Uh, uh, or ethnic communities that tend to use those services uh, uh, and treat those people as allies is that uh, they're they're dangerous people out there for a profit and uh, you are very vulnerable once you're in their hands. Let's talk about chocolate, right? That's a good thing to talk about. Unless you've got a big problem with having too much of it, which you think, that can't be a thing. But apparently it can be. If you've got 133,000 chocolate bars and you can't get rid of them. And that is a, a bit of a challenge for an Alberta physiotherapist and a candy company she and her husband uh, own and now find themselves in this very kind of sticky situation where they have to give away all these rum and butter bars um, after their manufacturers made a whole bunch of them, too many of them. And there's an expiry date of June. And if you were of the age in the 70s and 80s, uh, rum and butter bars were very, very popular, but then they fell out of fashion. And so this couple thought, well, we'll buy up the trademark and 
during the pandemic, they thought maybe we'll recreate the magic, but then too much magic was created. And it's like, what do you do with all this chocolate that you got to get rid of, you've paid for? And this is uh, what Crystal Regere is, uh, Westergaard is worried about. She is the owner of candy company Canadian Candy Nostalgia. And this is out west. She joins us now. Great to have you, Crystal. Thank you for having me. All right. You got a chocolate problem, and I'm going to help you solve it. I do remember rum and butter. They're a bit like a caramel um, with, a rub, with like a rummish kind of buttery flavor in, inside, correct? Yep. You betcha. All right. Okay. So take me back as to how this became a, a, a situation, because you actually have a full, you're very busy as a physiotherapist, but you and your husband love, you know, candy, and you've got a company called Can- Canadian Candy Nostalgia. So how did you end up in a situation where now you're kind of desperate to get rid of them? Well, this was my favorite, my husband's favorite, my husband's favorite mm. chocolate bar as a youth. And so my husband, I bought, brought back a chocolate bar, a uh, Western Canadian-focused one for my mom when she was in the nursing home, and that went over quite well. And he was <laughs> super patient and lovely about it, and he was just great. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to bring back his childhood favorite chocolate bar next. So I did a bunch of research, and we did a bunch of preparation. It takes a year, two years to prepare to bring back a chocolate bar, all the work you have to do. And then it fell during COVID for us to make the bars. So oh. the the factory in Montreal just kept delaying the making and delaying the making and delaying the making. And then when they did come out, it was hard to transport them, Mm. hard to get trucking for them. They couldn't get workers to come in to make them on a regular basis. And so when COVID ended and then they could make lots of these chocolate bars um, all of a sudden and catch up on the backlog, they did. Mm, and yeah. uh, so that was, yeah, too too much uh, catch-up went on last year. Yeah, it's kind of like when you print a whole bunch of stuff and it jams up in the memory, and then you're like, oh, my God, it's all printing now, and it's going to take days. So you've got all these chocolate bars, and I think there can be too much of a good thing because as much as you love anything, there's no way your husband's going to be 133,000 chocolate bars, but you also bought them to make, I guess, money on them. Um, so what do you do with them? I mean, it, it kind of, it sounds like you can probably give a lot away, but then that's all coming out of your pocket. And so what, what do you do? Well, we tried having, you know, like I, I, I was, I'm a high strung person. Uh, so I've been concerned <laughs> that we would have a hard time getting rid of this for months. And I had an emergency mm. meeting with, you know, everyone who uh, works on our, uh, chocolate bars with us back in, I don't know, January or February. <laughs> but um, we came up with the idea of doing buy one, get one free. But that didn't work. Stores don't want to buy one, get one free of a product that's due in June when they know I have a product due in November because I have also got bars we made in November. Mm. So as soon as they find out we have bars that are far fresher, they just buy those and then do without buy one, get one free. So then we were still left with them all no matter how how much we tried to give them away in that manner to stores. Stores just aren't set up to have chocolate bars on the shelf yeah. uh, with the date they've got to fret about. Not to mention, like, you can donate them. But, like, there's only so many that the food bank's going to carry. Because Apparently they don't you know, take like... chocolate bars. Oh, can you okay. believe? Oh, Calgary right, Food yeah. Bank well, won't take, quote, candy, unquote. So these were what, like a two two bucks? You know, what are your options? Can you not sell them online? And have you not had any interest? I have to think that people would take them off your hands. Well, we don't currently sell them online. 
right? So um, if we sold them online to people, well, first of all, the Safeways and um, 7-Elevens that have bought them from us at full price would, right. you know, oh, yes. until they found out we were just selling off ones with a short date, would be probably contacting us in annoyance, right? But we don't currently sell online. So we only sell into stores now or distributors. So boy, oh boy. if you think of 133,000 bars, and if each one had mm-hmm. to be handled by one of my staff and put in an envelope and mailed, the manpower that would be, like we just don't, we don't have that kind of man or woman power, right? The Maybe number of to get hours of labor yeah. to mail no, that I'm, many. I'm trying to solve your problem. Like maybe you just like do a big fondue, a chocolate fondue, and break a world record. And, uh, but, but, Whoa, that's I mean, the wildest idea someone's had. There you go. You can t- get a whole bunch of fruit and a vat of chocolate and make it a, 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 a an event. But but having said that, like. There's no way, clearly, by by the date, and I assume that the stores all go by the date, the, you know, they have to do that, but is there nowhere else? Like in Toronto, we have a lot of the nostalgia candy stores that were big in the 80s, and they got all this kind of different stuff. Do you not have a lot of those in Calgary that, that we, oh, sell we do, those? and they and, want my fresh nostalgic bars. So we have bars that we made that will have November as a date on them. So the nostalgic shops in Calgary will have those, but they'll have them dated for November. So what are you going to do with these bars? And, and do you regret... <laughs> We oh, oh, making your husband the rum and butter bar? No, because it's not. It's not uh, the the initial. The idea was sound, but the idea of having COVID <laughs> and expecting small businesses yeah. to be able to just absorb what it brings about it was not sound. <laughs> but uh, the idea is sound. We still sell uh, rum and butter bars that are correctly dated. Uh, we sell thousands of them a month, so that's. Um, yeah, we're not, I don't think we're going to stop making rum and butter bars. So rum and butter bar lovers who are listening, don't worry. We're not going to stop making them. <laughs> we're okay, how, so how many do you have? The, how, do you ha- how many do you have and how many do you have to get rid of? And how much are you going to lose if you don't get rid of them? Well, we have 133,000 dated for June. I didn't look up how many we have um, because we'll have thousands dated for November as well right now in the warehouse that are just going. They're steadily being ordered by stores because that's still got a fresh date to it. Um, there, I did, I did look up how, how heavy they are, because some people say, oh, yeah, I've got a truck. I'll come and get a pallet of them. And uh, it's a 1,000-pound pallet that you've mm. got to pick up. If you, yeah, uh, and they are stored at Gordon Foods Canada, which is one of Canada's top food uh, warehouses. So they will have rules in place about what kind of um, safety trucks they can even allow in to load up with this kind of stuff, right? So once you're in the Canadian food system, there's a lot of things in there to keep us safe, but they also keep us from working through a problem like this too. All right. So you're going to take a loss on this, I assume. Mm -hmm. Um, How can, if people ask me, how do I get the bar? Where can they get this bar? There may be a few people here that um, want it. They would need. How can we have, help you, Crystal? Yeah, they would need to have <laughs> the knowledge of how to book a truck that can take oh. <laughs> take a closed one thousand pound load, and if they or their charity of their choice has the ability to pick up food in that kind of a size and with that kind of trucking, um, and a lot of the bigger charities do, uh, then they could uh, yeah email me at uh, Canadian Candy Nostalgia gmail.com and um, we've managed to get rid of two of the pallets we think to big Calgary charities we think so um, there'd still be uh, 11 pallets left 
of bars. Well, let, let's see how you do uh, by the end of the week. Uh, Canadian yeah. candy nostalgia. Her name's Crystal. If you want some chocolate, maybe take your parents through a walk down memory lane because uh, the, the kids of the 80s, 70s, 80s, we like this stuff. This is the great stuff. Well, look, Crystal, it's a sweet problem to have, but boy, oh boy, I hope it hasn't soured um, your love affair with this particular Ooh. chocolate bar. But I'll, I'll follow along and I'll wish you the very best of luck and I do, do hope that you can uh, get ahead of this thing.